Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. You can hear my next guest, Dan Soder, at night and sometimes in the morning on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. He co-hosts The Bonfire with Big J Okerson Monday and Wednesday nights on Comedy Central Radio and often sits in as the third mic in the morning on Opie with Jim Norton. Soder also co-stars as Maffy on the Showtime series Billions and will be featured in the upcoming movie Drunk Parents starring Selma Hayek and Alec Baldwin. Soder's relationship with Comedy Central extends past radio to online and TV, where he appears in sketches on Inside Amy Schumer, stars in the web series Used People, and presents his first hour-long stand-up special, not special, this weekend. Dan and I also were neighbors, and he kindly invited me into his home to tell me all about how he's gotten this far. So let's get to it! A shiny microphone. I'm a diva, and I demand a shiny microphone. Yeah, this... Uh, oh, that's Mike Vecchione. Hey, Mike Vecchione. I don't know, but if we are, no, I'll just bro. tell you this. Just like everything, you just stepped on my career. This is my time to shine, Mike! Yeah. Mike, we're doing comedy things right now. <laughs> Let me be a comedian right now, Mike. I'm your roommate all the time. Let me be a comedian some of the time. Yes, you're a comedian? Show him the knife you have. I'm not going to show Sean my Bowie knife. <laughs> By the way, I'm a huge like believer in the apocalypse. Yeah. So I have certain specific apocalypse things. Like I have really good hiking boots. Oh, you're gonna show him your baseball bat? That's not enough for Dan Soder. Yeah, yeah, because we're not in the 30s and we're not rumbling with the sharks. Go in the bathroom, you old Italian man, and I will show him my Bowie knife. But I bought like a really big yeah. Bowie knife off online. So Dan Soder, uh, thanks for inviting. Uh, well, last things first, thanks for inviting me into your home. Yeah. Which, as uh, as listeners have already uh, caught on, we're sitting on my couch. Is the is the home that you share with comedian Mike Vecchione? Yeah, this is this is the yeah. Mike and I live a very Spartan lifestyle. We live with only comedians, and all we talk about is comedy. And if you if you watch uh, Dan's first hour special for Comedy Central, not special, which is in fact a very good special. Oh, thank you very much. You joke about this apartment. Yeah, I, I which it was kind of a. That was honestly like a riff, like uh, that they kept in the special. Oh wow! Which I was like pretty. Imp- when I was editing it, I was like, when I was help editing it, they, I mean, we had a great editor. But when uh, when I was like giving notes for the edits, I was like, oh, all right. Uh, and then I like asked Neil Marshall, who the producer, and, and Marcus, the director. I was like, should we keep that in that? And they're like, yeah, it's hilarious. I was like, all right. All right. But success hasn't changed you because no. you're you're on TV, Showtime's Billions. Yeah, you're on the radio. And, Bonfire, uh, crackle, crackle. And yet you're, you're still in this same apartment. Yeah, I've been in this apartment for, it will be nine years in August. So success has not changed you. No, I've just moved rooms. I've gotten myself a window. That was, that, I'm very modest, Sean. I just like adding things like a view of the outside. And, um, yeah, not a crushing claustrophobic. Um, yeah. You, I showed you the room. It's, yeah. It, you know, it's tiny. It's tiny, but that's what you have to do when you're... Yeah, a, I, an aspiring comedian. Yeah, York. when I was waiting tables, that room was a four. Like I think uh, a lot of young comics in New York 
and, and I was lucky not to make this mistake, but I think a lot of young comics get jobs where they have to work at nights sometimes or where their opportunity to get on stage is compromised by their day job. And that was something that I always like really tried to avoid because I didn't think it was going to be one of those things where I moved to New York where I was like, I'm going to be a working comic in six months. I was like, I got to go learn, relearn how to do comedy in New York. And I need a job that's not going to fuck that up. And so I waited tables during the day, which isn't a lot of money. Right. It's like, especially the restaurant I worked at, you would make way more if you worked dinner. So I stayed doing lunches, but I could afford that room. I, I just knew I could like make enough to, to pay for that room. Was that the only day job you held? Uh, in New York? Yeah. I worked at K-Rock 92.3 okay. when, when it was free FM and then back to K-Rock. But then I lost, I was there for two years and that's how I saved enough money to get this apartment. To even have enough money to pay for that fucking tiny room. I was working at K-Rock, and then they, uh, in 2009, they flipped formats, and I got I got let go. And so then I just stayed waiting tables until I could afford not to. What was that moment that you realized you could quit the day job? It was the best. Uh, I got a job working for Guinness as their brand ambassador. Okay. Yeah, and it was like, uh, hey, do you want to go on the road and just talk about Guinness or still wait tables? And I was like, yeah, I'll do the Guinness <laughs> thing. It, and it, it was strange because it was going from a day job that I despised. I loved the people I worked with, but I hated waiting tables, especially in Midtown on a bunch of young, entitled bankers, which is funny because that's what I got to end up play in, <laughs> uh, playing in Billions. But – um it was going from that to, like, working for Guinness, which was great. They treated me amazing. But I, was, I wasn't I was doing comedy. I was doing this, like, I was like a snake oil salesman for Guinness. <laughs> and then, then so it was like, you know, a job that I hated and then a job that I hated less. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't waiting tables. And, that's how, and then, like, that true graduation of, like, oh, I'm just going to do stand-up was, like, the best. And then it's also terrifying because there's not, you know, you don't know. Right. How it's it doesn't there's not a consistency. Were you drinking when you oh, yeah. did the Guinness job? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I quit drinking when I stopped doing the Guinness thing. My last night of drinking was my last night hosting the Guinness Ambassador thing, which was in Denver. It all ended in Denver where I grew up, so that was perfect. Okay. Yeah, it was fun, but man, yeah, there was a lot of drinking. <laughs> I remember one night in Washington D.C. we were doing shows, and uh, the forty. I'm a huge San Francisco 49ers fan, and the Niners were playing on Monday Night Football, and uh, that was the drunkest I ever got on that tour because I was, like, during the shows, mm -hmm. like, super excited for the – it was a Monday Night Football game, I believe. Thursday Night Football, that's what it was. And so I was drinking, like, it, for anticipation of the of the game. And you're in Denver. But I was – this was in – so this was uh, on the Guinness tour. This was in Washington, D.C. Okay, so you're in the Eastern time zone. Yeah, we're in Eastern time zone, waiting for the game. So – and my boss is like, we're going to have the shows done like by kickoff. And so I was like basically pre-gaming <laughs> for a diner game while I'm doing these Guinness shows. Right. And then just got beyond blackout drunk, smoked a bunch of cigarettes in my hotel room. And then I, I learned that if you smoke in your hotel room, just call back a week later and be like, what is this charge? And they're like, oh, well, we had to clean your room because it smelled like smoke. And then you just go, I, I don't smoke. And then they just took the charge off my credit card. It was great. So that's a little trick for the people that listen to this. 
Lie. Just lie to a hotel. It's your life hack for today. <laughs> yeah, lie, lie to which is just deceit. <laughs> That's the life hack. It's just deceit a hotel. Now, do you consider radio a day job as well? No. Because that... it's in your wheelhouse of talking and I would say the bonfire fun. to me is like, um, and I think Jay and I have described this before. It feels like uh, it's like. Uh, like Josh Homme is one of my favorite musicians. Mm-hmm. He's probably my favorite Queens musician. Of the Stone Age? Yeah, Queens of the Stone Age. And he has Eagles of Death Metal. Um, and whenever they ask it, he he never says it's a side project. It's just his other band. And I look at Bonfire like that. It's like stand-up's what I do. And then like the Bonfire's like, it all adds into that. Because people listen to Bonfire, then they come see live shows. And it's just a chance to be around Big J and, and try to make him laugh. And he, I think, is... Him and Joe List, I've always said, are the two funniest human beings I've ever met. When I heard you got that job, it's it did not surprise me at all because you do have this voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, and now hearing that you worked for K Rock as well. Yeah, and I worked. What, that's that's what I did in college. Is I worked at a, a great station in Tucson called KFMA, which is like um, pretty. If you live in Tucson, you know KFMA. You joke about having this voice since childhood. Yeah. So when you were a child with this voice. Did you envision using it for a career, or yeah, I, were you just? I remember um, freaked out that you had a different voice from the other kids. First, freaked out. Second, in high school, I was like, "Oh, I had this." Um, I wasn't a good student, but there was like this guidance counselor who's like, "You got to do. Would you want to do the morning announcements?" There was like stuff like that, and I was like, "Is that?" And then my dad always wanted to do radio. And I was, and I, that was where it first got in my head where I was like, that would be a cool job because I love music and I love, um, talking (laughs) and I like, I always got in trouble for being a smart ass, but I always wanted to be a comedian first. And then it was like, it just shows you the, the lack of confidence that I have that I was like, well, I can't do comedy. So what else could I do that's in the same vein? And radio was like kind of that thing that got in my head. But at first my voice, I was like ashamed of it. I used to call Toys R Us when I was like 10, like nine or 10 for specific action figures. Like, you know, if they had like a new professional wrestling action figure that came out, I would try to, Hey, there's a train. I want, is it picking it up? I don't think so. No. Oh, well, that's, I live under the train. And that's why Sean was saying I, success hasn't changed me because I'm still like a troll. Um, but I would call Toys R Us and ask for these specific toys mm-hmm. and they'd put me on hold and then pick back up and be like, miss. And they would think I was a grown woman. Wow. Because my voice had that, like, child, like, tint. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the highness of a, of a child, but the, the, there was depth to it. My mom has a really deep so voice. So it was an alto. Yes. Perfect. I was an alto. <laughs> I was an alto when I'd call Toys R Us. But that, like, made me be like, oh, man, what's wrong with my voice? Why do they think I'm a woman? I'm a grown woman. But it didn't scar you enough. No, but then I got older, and I always liked doing voices since I was a kid, like, um... My dad would let me listen to the Jerky Boys. Sure. So it was like one of our things. Comedy Which is was... why you were raised by your mother. Yes. But when I visited my dad, my dad lived in San Francisco, and I'd go live with him in the summers and winters. And um, when I got to go, like my mom was wouldn't let me watch MTV, but oddly would let me watch Comedy Central. Okay. And and I've said this before, but I think I'm like the first generation of the, like the first Comedy Central generation. Where I was like eight or nine years right. old watching, because um, they used to play like Evening at the Improvs. They'd play live from Caroline's. They would do uh, Bravo, had the A-list. 
So, th- like, there was a lot of stand-up on cable when I was a kid. And Comedy Central would play, this was before they did Presents, they'd just play, like, old stand-up specials, like Raw, and they'd play live in concert, and they'd play Back in Town, like, these weird, and they would also show old Saturday Night Lives. So my mom was cool with me watching that, but I wasn't allowed to watch MTV, <laughs> which is strange, because I walked in the kitchen at, like, eight years old, there was a sketch on SNL, I think from like the 89 season called the attack of the masturbating zombies. And it would just be like people in a, it was, I forget who the host was, but they were like making out in a Corvette and then the zombies would pop up, but just as the bushes in front of them would rattle. And so I went in the kitchen and I was like, Hey mom, what's masturbating? And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, there's a sketch on SNL called the masturbating zombies. And she like laughed and she was like, ah, it's where you play with your penis. And I was like, why would you play with your penis? I was like eight. So I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. But, um, how is that a toy? Yeah. But, uh, but the comedy central thing was like, I got to watch that. And my dad would, was always really cool. He was like the one that would let me watch the adult humor. Mm-hmm. Like I got to go like we were, Rodney Dangerfield was really big and I could do like a Rodney Dangerfield impression when I was a kid. And I just remember that like really made my dad laugh. So I was, I was always like, trying to do so I, I think that's why i wasn't insecure about my voice it was because i had fun doing voices was rodney the first comedian impersonation you did yeah yeah uh rodney was definitely the first one because i would make my dad laugh just like um like at the store as a kid and i had a deep voice so i could do like the huh, huh, i'm telling you and my dad would be like like even like i'd be like hey dad why don't you take me to the airport send me back to mom and he'd just think it was like the funniest shit in the world <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm telling you, you have no respect for mom. That's why you don't pay child support. And he'd be like, I could say the realest shit to my dad. Right. Like, and he would laugh because it was funny. So that was like always like a and weird. And especially because it wasn't your vo- yeah. voice. It I was coming the... from you, but through the voice of Rodney. Yeah, and so. I could do like church lady for him. And I remember like that was like the first laugh I ever remember getting off my dad and my aunt. They're just like hammered smoking cigarettes on the back porch yeah. in, in the back patio on the apartment in San Francisco. And then like, I'm just doing the church lady dance. And my dad and aunt thought I was like five and they thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And you're like, Oh, cool. I remember, I remember one of the first showcases I saw you on in New York. Yeah. Uh, was it Broadway comedy club? Okay. For old or current management, probably old management. Yeah. Uh, cause you, I think you were with Bjorn. No, I would, no, 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 no. Oh. I didn't have management. Okay. I think I was just doing, I think Bjorn got me on but, that. Uh, but I remember being so impressed that you did a Chappelle impersonation. You know what? You know what that was? Was that Schtick or Treat? No, no, this was a showcase. Oh yeah, I Dave Chappelle for industry. Dave Chappelle was like, um, that was the guy that changed everything for me. Like, I saw Chappelle's half hour HBO special in nineteen ninety four, and I was eleven, right. and I was like, that's like that's him and Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt, they did HBO Half Hours the same year. Right. All in San Francisco. In the San Francisco. They did the Half Hour uh, One Night Stands. And I saw saw Chappelle's and I saw Patton Oswalt's. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's exactly. Especially because Patton Oswalt was doing the cops bit. He had had multiple bits that I still to this day think are like uh, Piss Drinkers, Inc., where he talks about uh, fetish magazines. And he always imagines (laughs) that it's like an office. And like, there's a guy upset about it. It's one, of, and then he did Nick Nolte as Han Solo, but the cops bit. Him and Bill Hicks had like the two best cops bits about the TV show. And I remember watching, 
that HBO half hour and being like, oh, shit, that's like – and Chappelle. I mean, Chappelle was like – Chappelle blew my mind. So, but, how, so how do you end up going to University of Arizona then? I wanted to Tucson's get, not a comedy – No. Denver's much Mecca. more of a comedy city yeah. than – and I grew up in Denver. Or you could have gone to San Francisco – yeah, I think which has a huge comedy scene. Yeah, my San Francisco uh, kind of became a weird place for me because my dad died when I was a kid, and so it kind of how came, old? I was fourteen. Okay, and so it kind of became this place of like uh, my grandma still lives there. It, I mean, I'm 32. And Your it's grandma just, Nana? Or yeah, my my okay. Nana. I only got one Nana. Okay, uh, my other grandmother's dead, but my, like my Nana, the Nana, lives um, north of San Francisco. So it was always like I th- I'm 32, and it just is now becoming like kind of okay for me to go there without getting weird. It always becomes like oddly nostalgic because that was like you know my dad wasn't really in my life. This got deep quick, huh? Well, uh, no, but my my surviving family has all moved down to Florida. Yeah. So I don't have any reason to go to my childhood home, which is bought right, Massachusetts, no, Connecticut, Connecticut. Okay. Or even my father's side of the family's home in outside of Boston, or my mother's. Side, which is Pittsburgh. I don't. Yeah. Go, I don't have any reason to go to any of those places. And you kind of lose those those, those things. And, and San Francisco to me became a city where it was like, I go visit my grandma there, mm. but I don't want to live there. But I, I should have gone to USF or somewhere. Um, but I decided Arizona for mo- one reason was it wasn't in Colorado because I was afraid of going to a school in Colorado. Colorado is and people. A lot of people are finding out about this now, ironically because of legal marijuana, like. People are moving there, and it's mm-hmm. booming. Um, I've always called Colorado the best-kept secret in the United States because I lo- it was the fucking best place to grow up. It was just the best place to grow up. And growing up there, I loved growing up there, and I loved the state of Colorado. And I was like, if I go to college here, I'm going to live here the rest of my life. Like, if I go to Fort Collins or if I go to Boulder... I'm, or Metro, even I, I would just I would have just stayed in Denver. I would have just always stayed there, and then probably you know been trying to get a job at like KTCL or some radio station there, and maybe done comedy. But I think a big thing for comedians is just completely making yourself uncomfortable and mm-hmm. making yourself like irritated in a, in a weird way. And moving to Arizona, number one, it was like a decent school. The University of Arizona was academically decent. It's good. It's a good school. Take that, Arizona State. Yeah, fuck you, ASU. <laughs> you scum devils. But uh, going there, and then also, uh, there was like this this girl that I had a really big crush on in high school went there, and I was like, well, if girls like her go there, there has to be like more. <laughs> There's something there. Yeah, there has to be more girls like that there. And then I, I went there, and it, I was miserable. I was just miserable for like the first, socially, like I met great people, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like a big man on campus. I didn't mesh well with that social life at Arizona, which ended up pushing me to work hard to get a job in radio and then do stand when I started doing stand up at laughs in Tucson, it felt like it just felt so right to just go there on a Friday night. Just go see who's headlining. Go watch the two shows out and you know, beg for a guest set on the late show. And then just go and and you know, I drank for cheap and you could still smoke cigarettes inside. So it was just like one of those things where I was really happy that that was How long did it take you to even know that laughs was around uh my sophomore year i think i looked it up freshman year and i wanted to go that i didn't have the balls to do it my freshman year and then at the end of my sophomore year i looked it up and like went and did a mic what was their mic situation like better than anything in new york there was a crowd they would do it uh they first did it wednesdays but thursdays they would do it um at seven and then 
the crowd would build. So the the better and the more, I want to say, you know, the longer you were doing open mics and the better you got, the obviously the later you went, you know, and I mean, it really was like just doing a set by the end because the audience was there for the eight o'clock show. So you would be going up in front of the crowd and then they would like do the announcements and then bring up the MC for the regular show. But it, oh, wow. ro- it rolled okay. all the way into the regular show. Oh, okay. So people that were coming. That's nice. And it was good for the club because if you're an, if you're going to see your friend at an open mic, well, you could just stick around and see the headliner for that weekend on the Thursday show. So it was really good. And by the time, you know, that was, I, I did comedy for two and a half years in Tucson. And by the end, it was like I was featuring at the club. So it was fun to do an open mic. I was getting sets every week. Do you remember the first time you got to feature? Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of, uh, I kind of like talked the, the owner into it because I was emceeing and the, so there was a problem with the feature. And I was like, let me feature. And he, I was just there at the open mic. <laughs> and he was like, Scotty Goff, who I, I love, you know, that guy that he owned the club when I was there. And I, I fucking love that guy and all the, all the people that worked there. But Scotty was like, no, I don't know. And I was like, come on, like, let me feature. And I got, I did like a 20, a shaky 20. Mm-hmm. And it went great. Who was the headliner? Um, I don't remember. I, I, Jason Russell. Okay. Jason Russell was the headliner. And he was super. He said my voice sounded like Dauber from Coach. <laughs> and that was like one of the hardest I've ever laughed. Because I walked in. He goes, what's up, Dauber? And I was like, this, what a great pull. It was such an awesome reference. But then you just moved straight to New York. Yeah. From Tucson. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. I didn't want to go to L.A. All my favorite comics were East Coast guys. All my favorite comics, it's like, um, I just liked their style. I just liked everything about it. I didn't want to have a car. I wanted just completely to consume myself with stand-up. So I moved here. It just seemed like the rational choice. I was a huge fan of Opie and Anthony and Tough Crowd and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, guys like Patrice and and Attell and Louie and Burr and all the guys that I knew on the East Coast, Geraldo. I was like, oh, they're all in New York. I would go, I remember being in... uh, the library at the University of Arizona and looking when the comedy seller started putting their lineups online, I would just go read like a weirdo. I would just read, <laughs> I would read the Rafifi lineup. I would read the comedy seller lineup. Mm-hmm. And I, I, cause I was just like, I was obsessed with the movie comedian. So I kind of knew, I, right, that I had showed, like a map. That showed the olive tree a lot. It showed it. the olive tree, but it also showed stand up New York. Mm-hmm. And I kind of Gotham. knew Gotham. Yeah. And I kind of knew where some of the places were. So and the internet was around, so I could just like, but it was like, the internet wasn't as involved. You couldn't see videos and, and audio. It was just like, oh, that's the lineup. I I could just know. So I knew who these guys were. It was weird, yeah. But and then I came, and then I moved to New York, and I would just like go hang out at the. I wouldn't like hang out at the cellar, but I would go watch shows and then go do open mics. A lot of people talk to me, who are new to New York but not new to comedy, will talk to me. Inside the olive tree, about being intimidated about going up to the table and talking. I to didn't SD go, or talking to the comedians. It took me four years before I ever talked to anybody at the table. I wouldn't even go near the table when I'd hang out here. I wouldn't go near the table. The first, the night I auditioned, uh, I had done Montreal, and I I'd open, I was opening for Bobby Kelly, and I was on his podcast. He, he started putting me on. You know what, dude. And uh, he he was like, yeah, I told, you know, one day he's like, I told Esty about you or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. And I was working other clubs in the city. But I was scared shitless of the cellar. 
In fact, CBs, which used to be open on uh, McDougal and Bleecker. Right, that's just a block down. Block down. Yeah. And that was a club I worked. I wouldn't walk, walk in front of the cellar when I worked there. I would get off at West 4th Street, and I would walk down 6th Avenue to Bleecker and then take a left as opposed to going down and then around. I just wouldn't do it because I was in, so intimidated by the cellar. And then the night I got my audition, I didn't have any spots. It was a Friday night, and, I, and Bobby was there, and Bobby's like, come by the cellar. And I go by, and I remember it was um, him and Keith Robinson <laughs> were sitting at the table. And I'm Keith like, is but classic. I knew, I kind of knew Keith through mm-hmm. DeRosa and Bobby, okay. but not well. Right. He didn't know me. He didn't know me, know me. <laughs> and so I sit down at the table, and I was wearing this leather jacket. And I remember, I was so fucking nervous. But I'm like talking to Bobby, like trying to be cool. And Keith just give me that Keith stare. And he goes, ah, Bobby, your buddy's bugging me. I don't like how nervous he is. Esty's going to sit down and his head's going to explode. I just remember him saying that. And then uh, and he goes, ah, my favorite line is he goes, I don't like his Nick DiPaolo starter kit jacket. Because I had a fucking leather jacket on. And uh, But it was like, for me, that moment was being like, oh, man, like I'm fucking getting my balls busted at the table. And then Esty sat down and was like, I'll see you. I'll watch you tonight mm-hmm. on the midnight show. And it was, I went to CB's and Big J was there. I remember having a couple beers and Big J was like, just do your Montreal set. You'll be fine. And I did. And I went there and then SD passed me and it was like, it was the best. I was, I was dating, uh, kind of, I was, I was seeing this girl who was a lawyer and I was supposed to hang out with her that night. And I was like, Hey, uh, we're going to have to hang out like late. And she's like, how late? I was like two in the morning. And I was just, and then I met up with her at a bar and I was I just remember being like so amped up. Like, I came home and Vecchione and his his the girl he was dating at the time was here, mm-hmm. and I was like, I got into the cellar, and he's like, What? It was it was just awesome. Had Vecchione been passed? Oh yeah, yeah. He'd been working there for years. I like for a couple. Of, I think he'd been working there for like two or three years at that point. So that was. Like, so is it like when you hit your first home run and you come back to the dugout? You're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I told Norman it, it felt like because I did a gig with Mark Norman and Matt Ruby up in Connecticut, like in Samarill, and they. They they got in like six months after I did, but I was like the first one to get in, and we were like talking about it, like what was it like? And I was like, that is, it's like you, you know, I think I told Norman it felt like getting it felt like getting into an NBA game as a player, where you like and you hit a shot. And you're like, I fucking hit a three. I hit a three. I mean, yeah, it was against the Hawks, but I hit a three, and you're just like super up on it. But yeah, that was like one of my favorite memories of New York comedy. And now, you go from. Listening to Opie and Anthony just yeah. sometimes being on – well, it's Opie with Jim Opie Norton. with Jim. But, I mean, I got to go on – when Anthony got fired, I talked to Opie, and I kind of told him. I was like, man, it was – you don't know how big of an honor it was to kind of be the last new comic to get, as I called it, like his black belt from the Opie and Anthony dojo. Because I, I got to go on enough. Where it wasn't like one appearance. Right. Like I got to go on O&A like I want to say four or five times before Anthony got fired. And even for me as a fan that grew up listening to Burr and Patrice argue on there and listening to Louis. There's so many Louis bits. Like knowing about Louis, I knew about Louis C.K. because of Opie and Anthony. I didn't know about him. Like I knew about Lucky Louis coming and stuff. But I learned about Louis through Opie and Anthony when you just go and hang out. Wow. And it was like one of those things where as a young comic being able to do Opie and Anthony like five times. And obviously, like it's still, I still love going on the show, but to do the O and A was like fucking. I told him I was like, man, that's like, that's up there for me. But it's 
it seems as though even over the last year or so with Bonfire and being able to go on OB with Jim mm-hmm. and Billions, yeah, that your schedule and all the opportunities for you have changed. Yeah, I think I'm getting a lot of super cool opportunities. Um, like I talked about doing the Guinness gig. It's kind of a job you don't want to do, but you have to do to survive. I don't get, I don't have those anymore. I get to do shit that I really want to do. Like use people with Michelle Wolf. Yeah. The, like it's like the web these, series on comedy central. Yeah. I wrote a script that Louis J Gomez and I are like shopping around that we're really proud of. That's an animated that like we have a lot of, it's just like fun stuff that stuff I want to do. It's amazing. You know, especially like the bonfire. Jay and I are always like, we'll leave at eight o'clock. And after like a fun episode, we'll be like, Dude, that's, it's just crazy that we just get to do that. Cause Jay and I, it just started us, uh, us sitting outside the cellar smoking cigarettes and bullshitting. And Jay's like one of my favorite people in the world to bullshit with. But his girlfriend, Christine, you know, was like, you guys need to do a show. And this it, it this just, needs to be on microphone. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, you know, we're still growing and learning how to how to actually do a real radio show. But it's, uh, man, it's, it's, when I think back to waiting tables and coming home and like, having enough time to splash water on my face, uh, smoke a bowl, and then get a coffee and go to go back on the train and go back in for check spots at Stand Up New York and, and you know, open mic at Bowery Poetry Club. But I would do all that again because it was – the fact that I get to just do that now as my job is fucking unbelievable. Well, and didn't your role on Billions, Mayfee? Yeah, Mayfee. Mephi- oh, no oh. one knows how to say it. So, Everyone asks sorry. me. They're like, how do you, I, even me. Dude, I was halfway I through thought, this. I thought one of the other characters called you, maybe. No one knows. I, even halfway through filming, I was like, "Is it? it's Mephi, right? You don't <laughs> but, even. But didn't that come about precisely because you were going to these open mics? And that's how, I met, Brian, Bri- that's how I met Brian Koppelman, was doing the open mic at Stand Up New York. And um, he was uh, writing a movie, but... He, I, I think he you he's know, the co-creator co-creator yeah of he, billions. He, he created billions and um i met him in 2007 doing open mics and he's a, you know was a successful screenwriter and i didn't even know he was a screenwriter i thought he was just like a dude doing open mics yeah and i've even said that before like <laughs> when he told me he was a screenwriter i was like okay good <laughs> luck and, he, and then i find out his first movie was rounders and you're like oh fuck but he um the thing about brian that i love is he's never been like here like here's something but what he does is he gives me a shot at stuff i auditioned for his movie solitary man which i almost got which was like real close when i was that was like one of those things where you're like ah oh, man would that have changed stuff but he's given me opportunities to audition for stuff and and then with billions i auditioned for the pilot as kind of like a backup as like an understudy okay. for a role for the role of connerty which is played amazingly by uh, toby leonard moore who's like an amazing actor and they wanted him but he was tied up with Daredevil. And so I auditioned, and they were like, Showtime liked me. So Koppelman got me in the room. You know, it's his show. Right. But he wasn't in no way like, this guy <laughs> is going to be. He he didn't like, which I feel kind of good. Like, it's it's awesome. He I wouldn't have this role without him. But it was great that he kind of made me earn it. I think it made me. And then, you know, uh, Toby Leonard Moore became available. And they're like, we don't need you for the pilot. But would you want to do a role in the pilot? Or would you risk it? And if we go to series, you, there might be a role there for you. And I was like, fuck it. Go, you guys are going to go to series because you just kind of knew. It was Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. Right. You're like, you're going to go to series. <laughs> These guys are amazing. I read the script. I was like, the script's awesome. And um, so then when they went to series, they're like, hey, we're going to try to. 
it's one of those things where I think at first I was only supposed to be in two episodes and then another actor had to go do something. So they gave me his scene and then that worked out. And it was one of those things where I kind of felt like I was every scene I had to do the best I could because I didn't know if I was going to get another scene and it kind of led to more scenes. And by the end of the season, I got to do these like really cool scenes with Damien. Had you thought about acting as something you wanted to do before this? I heard, uh, I kind of was interested in acting, but I, everything that I've done, I think has always been from the place of like, well, how can I get more eyes on my standup? And I know that acting is one of those things where, uh, it's really good. It's, it's a fun, challenging thing, but also it will get people to, to get you to, um, to watch your standup. And, but I never really thought about it. I would be in people's sketches, for, you know, online sketches, or I would do anything. I just want to get funnier, and I know acting would help me with my stage and my, and my delivery. And then it was Schumer that was, like, put me on her show. It was the first time where it was, like, a real acting gig. And that was, like, straight up handed to me. Like, we were at the cellar busting balls, and she's like, hey, can you – it was season two. And she's like, hey, can you act? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, seriously, like, I'm going to give you, like, a real role. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she put me in the sketch, A Chick Who Can Hang. And it was, like, it was awesome. And it, it was kind of one of those things where i you're learning on the fly. I've always done much better learning on the job as opposed to okay. the opposite way of, like, learning and then going in. When was the uh, – these are all kind of uh, face-nutting situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah, was the – face coming. When was the, when was the last time you – you face nutted. Uh, a week ago, where I was, I was in San Diego. Two weeks ago, I was working at the American Comedy Company. I was just in my hotel, and I went down a face coming rabbit hole, where I think I started watching. I watched someone find a homeless dog, oh. and then they do the time elapse of like how mangy it is, and then when they like, they like wash it, and then they like bring it back to good health. And then you see it like six months later and it's got a family and it was like that. So that started it. And then I think what made me face come was, uh, oh, I'm always big on reunions when people haven't seen each other. Mm -hmm. And then they like tell the story through music. Oh, so not even just soldiers, but like long lost sisters. Oh, oh, (laughs) anything of that. Anything. um, The one that always gets me, the one, the thing that makes me face come the hardest is there's a clip of a boy with Down syndrome, severe Down syndrome, who gets accepted into college, and it's him and his dad reading his acceptance letter, and oh, it's I've like, seen yeah. I just like even if I can like cue it up, it's like a favorite porn clip. I can cue it up, and I'll be like, oh god, here it comes, oh god, and he, there's a yeah, there's just like one part where you're like, oh fuck, yeah. So I, that was last time my face came. I cry a lot more. It's in, good for in you. my forties than I ever did. It's really good for you. When I was bullied as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, but it's a good crying. Though. But you, like you got to understand, I think that's where the damage comes from, is when you're a kid and you're supposed to cry, you're told you're not to, so you shove that shit down, and that's why, you know, uh, certain guys have to be choked to come. <laughs> it's like, because they just push that down, and then that <laughs> becomes their thing. But I think uh, now, I think it's a lot more acceptable to, like, cry and have emotions. But I think even as you grow older, you're kind of, like, more comfortable with your emotions. And I think that's where the face coming thing came from. It was like in my 30s, I'm much more comfortable talking about crying and, and or actually crying than like that seediness and like the seediness of 20 where you're just like, I just want to fuck all the time. In 30s, you're like, hey, I want to feel. 
And you've got a lot more to feel about now. Yeah, so. I got a lot of stuff to feel about. Who's been the the best uh, recently in terms of giving you advice? Um, or even not a who, but if you've read anything or watched anything that's there's. I, I always try to find. I love as being a comedian. I always like am still like a huge comedy fan, so I love like watching people's specials. I love like just seeing what's out there and always hearing interviews. But there's like certain pieces of information that I always like just really stick in my head. Uh, I think recently. The most recently, I, I, it was an older interview with Bill Burr, but he has this great thing where he's talking about watching a tell when he was featuring for a tell, and he said, you know, he, he watched him tag jokes differently every night, and he's like, he says this great thing that every comic should listen to about not being trapped in the bit when you're on stage and just doing the bit how you normally do it, and that's like a big problem I feel I have where sometimes I can get robotic and my set's not as good as it could be, so that was something that struck me, and then... Um, yeah, Colin Quinn watched one of my sets, and he was, in a very Colin way, was like, oh, I fucking, why don't you start performing more? You know, like, perform. You write these bits, perform them. And he was, like, talking shit about me and all my friends, you know, our group of comics. Right. The young guys. And he's like, you guys just don't fucking perform. And it's just great, because you're like, yeah, yeah, we need to learn that. Because I think New York comics a lot shit on L.A. comics for being like, yeah, they're just performers, but they're like, they are amazing performers. And I think we should learn from that. When a... Uh... On a flip, flip side, when a young person comes up to you, want wants to be a comic, what's the first thing you tell them? Just get on stage as much as possible. Nothing is a substitute for stage time. It's it's like um, go. It's like how do you get in shape? You're like go to the gym. That's just all you can say. That's what they're asking. They're like how do I get in shape? You're like go to the gym, and they look at you like and, and you're like then go back to the gym the next day. Like, Chris Rock said that in an interview one time where he's like, you need to be out every night if you want comedy to be your job. And um, he's one of the legends. You should listen to the people that came before you and just do what they say because they're not going to – no one's going to lie to you. It's always the same. Go on stage and fail and try to be funny and be okay with failure because that's all this job is. Well, you know what, Dan Soder? It it sounds and looks as though you've taken the advice to heart. Yeah. Because you're – Hour on Comedy Central, not special. Yeah, far from robotic. Oh, thanks. thanks. You, you listened to the crowd. You yeah. played to the. You played to that specific crowd. Yeah, which were, uh, you know, in Philadelphia. It's such a fucking great crowd. It's that. It's that like Philly, and you know, from being in Boston for so long, it's that Boston kind of thing where there is a little fear of like, <laughs> if I'm not funny, these motherfuckers are going to turn. Yeah, and I, you know, and I was lucky to do my half hour in Boston, and it felt like that. Like the entire time, you're like, keep the pressure on them. And in Philly, there's that. And it felt really good that that audience was so receptive and so just on board. Well, you rose to the moment. And, yeah, thanks, uh, man. And thanks for letting me uh, yeah. here to experience this moment. With and you me. got to see the trains go by. I did. Yeah, the, the choo-choos <laughs> went by. <laughs> well, uh, the next train out of town has your name on yeah. it. <laughs> Straight to Starville. Ooh, population, hopefully me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yeah, of course, dude. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
things first. 